0: Recovery Elevator, episode 269.
1: I just kind of had that epiphany moment where I'm like, I just can't do this. Obviously, I can't I can't moderate. I'm just, it's not in me. And I can, I'm very good with, with willpower when I'm not drunk. But once I have that first drink, it's over. So it kind of just all clicked into place and it made sense to me that I have to stop.
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we have Derek. He's 35 years old, he's from New York City, and took his last drink on August 22nd, 2019. In his interview, Derek talks about how he tried to keep his addiction alive and how his willpower worked when he wasn't drinking. It's a fantastic interview. As always, you guys are going to love it okay let's do this in this episode i want to cover a trend i'm excited about i'm going to cover what a no low drink is talk about non-alcoholic beers and kombucha i'm also going to give my recommendation if you should stay away from these drinks or not since some of them do contain trace amounts of alcohol side note I feel more influencers, bloggers, podcasters need to cover some of these controversial topics such as can we drink non-alcoholic beers that still contain small amounts of alcohol, the role, if any, that cannabis plays in recovery, and plant medicines such as ayahuasca, psilocybin, and ibogaine. In episode 170 of this podcast, I came out about my experience with ayahuasca despite knowing I would face some intense criticism, which I did. I still feel it's an incredibly powerful resource, and not sharing it with the audience wouldn't be true to my mission. And recently, I heard from a blogger in this space who tried ayahuasca for the first time, and they said it was the most powerful resource they have ever come across. I then said, wow, I'm so happy with you. Shoot me the link when you share your experience with the audience. I'm excited to read about it. They responded with, I don't have any plans about going public with it. I didn't respond back, but my inner response was weak. But I get it, and I'm sure I'll get some flack about the position I take with kombucha and non-alcoholic beers. So here we go. Speaking of ayahuasca, I'm hoping to get some dates set up for another trip to Rhythmia and Costa Rica for later this year or early next year 2021. Email me at paul at recoveryelevator.com if you're interested in joining. And before we go any further, I want to share with you some exciting news about Cafe Re, some cool changes that I'm going to make. But first I want to cover what Cafe Re is. You've heard the announcement about Cafe Re in every episode, but I personally want to cover it in this one. So Cafe R.E. they are small intimate online communities of people who no longer want alcohol in their lives, people who are taking a break, or are simply sober curious. Now these Facebook groups are private, as in unsearchable on Facebook, and we take this privacy serious. These groups are capped at 300 to 400 members to ensure intimacy. And we now have four groups. We've got Cafe Ari, this is the original group, the OG group, Cafe Ari Blue, Cafe Ari Go, and Cafe Re Up, which is the latest group we launched this past January 1st, many of those who have stayed away from alcohol since that date. So with the $19 a month, you get access to this community, the contacts, and you'll get instant accountability. We have online meetups and discussions. We have book club, movie club, guided meditations. You can also be set up with an accountability partner as many times as you want. You'll get discounts to the in person meetups, retreats, and sober travel trips. Okay, so here are the changes I'm excited about. Starting May 1st, 15% of the monthly fees will be dedicated towards a partnership with a nonprofit that is geared towards helping those affected by addiction. This could be a yearly retreat or a meetup where we do community outreach or help with a service project. I'll also be allocating a portion of the monthly fees towards our independent meetups, either for a dinner, snacks, or an event. I'm going to create a panel comprised of seasoned Cafe RE community members to help me lead Cafe RE opposed to me just throwing darts at a wall and seeing what sticks. So if you'd like to join this incredibly supportive, private online community, go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. As many of you know, I have a book titled Alcohol is Shit, so it may come as a surprise for me to admit there are some good uses for alcohol. Number one, it does have a place in the medical field, it does a great job of killing bacteria and sterilizing things. Number two, it's a great fuel. It can power a car, a train, a rocket, or whatever. It's a highly flammable fuel. So, people are waking up to the fact that alcohol is a class 1 carcinogen and ingesting the poison can cause major havoc on internal bodily systems. So, a trend is emerging. This trend is people are drinking less alcohol, especially younger folks. In addition, consumers are switching to more non or low alcohol content drinks. And you can find a link to the article where I get this information from on the Recovery Elevator episode 269 show notes. Thank you so much, Carrie Mack, for doing the show notes. People in masses are starting to recognize that alcohol kills 88,000 people per year in just the United States alone causes ulcers, sexual problems, vitamin B deficiency, apathy, gastritis, malnutrition, nerve damage, liver disease, acute alcohol poisoning, and making an ass out of yourself disorder. And this is the reason why sales of no, or low alcohol beer, and this is where the term no low comes from, are up 30% since 2016. Let me say that again, since 2016, sales of no or low alcohol beer are up 30%. Now, this trend is especially popular with 18 to 24 year olds. Another amazing statistic with this age group is that the number of 18 to 24 year olds who report they didn't drink at all raised by 6% last year alone to 23% now, almost a quarter of that population total. Wow. You get a lot of flack, millennials, but good on you. The article also states that the number of alcohol drinkers across the British population overall also appears to have fallen slightly. Now that is substantial. According to the Craft Brewers Trade Organization, no low alcohol is set to be one of the driving trends of 2020. The report is forecasting that no alcohol or low alcohol and free from beers are set to be one of the fastest growing parts of the market in 2020, with under 35s choosing low alcohol versions of the drinks for a quiet night in or to accompany meals. Consumers are more conscious of their physical and mental health than they have ever been. And this has driven the fall in alcohol consumption we are seeing, especially among young people. Here's another cool figure. Growth in beer sales overall is slowing with total beer sales in 2019 rising by only 1.1% compared with a 2.6% climb a year earlier. And the report also indicated a slight increase in the overall number of people who never drink alcohol with 17% saying they were a teetotaler compared with 16% a year before. That's roughly 3.5 million people new to the sobriety movement. We're glad to have you. Life is so much better on the other side. So good stuff. And I share this with you in hopes to remind you that you're not alone, that more people than ever are questioning the role that alcohol is playing in their lives. People are taking addiction seriously and recognize it's not something that younger people even want to mess with. When millennials say YOLO, they aren't including alcohol addiction. People, just like myself and you, are consciously making the decision to not drink something that will make you less conscious, less alive, and less vibrant. I choose, and I know you do as well, vitality. Okay, let's cover non-alcoholic beer. Legally, they can sell it or market it as non-alcoholic if it contains less than 0.5% of alcohol. So. Non-alcoholic beer, it isn't correct to say it doesn't contain alcohol. Just want to inform you all on that. Thank you, FDA. And here's a good you-might-need-to-ditch-the-booze if line. You might need to ditch the booze if you just calculated how many NA beers you'll need to drink to relive the glory days. Now, there are some companies that are taking this 0.5% to a 0.0, so good on you Heineken and UK-based Smashed Lager for making a true 0.0% non-alcoholic beer. Now, before I give you my opinion, my stance on non-alcoholic beers, let's first cover why you're wanting to drink an NA beer. Is it the taste that there are small amounts of alcohol in the beverage to blend in? To not be asked why you aren't drinking? Personally, I never drank beer, wine, or hard alcohol for the taste. I drank it for effect. And I can think of about 74 other beverages that taste significantly better than any beers, all of which don't contain alcohol. Soda water with a splash of cranberry and a lime wedge is at the top of this list. Another one is called the Dustimosa, which is where you take a couple sips out of your LaCroix or Buble, I'm hot on Buble these days, they taste so good and then mix in, pour into the can, cranberry juice or orange juice or grapefruit juice. So this is how I treat NA beers. I don't drink them. Not because I don't want to flirt with the idea of trace alcohol amounts in my system, but I prefer the taste of other beverages. Now there have been several times when someone hosts a party and they get me a six pack of NA beers knowing I'll be attending. And that's super generous of them. When this happens, I'll always have at least one. And one time, someone got me and my friend Dusty, who was interviewed on episode 204 of this podcast, got us both Bush non-alcoholic beers to play flip cup with everyone so we could be included. How cool is that? So my stance, my official take on NA beers, unless it's a true 0.0% is stay away. You can find better tasting alternatives and you don't want to rattle the cage. It's not worth it. I once heard a story of a guy whose wife only allowed him to have N.A. beers in the house. So each night, he would sneak out into the garage and drink 25 to 30 non-alcoholic beers, each one of those containing 0.5% alcohol, which was the equivalent of like 4 to 5 beers. And he said it was painful. So you don't want to mess with that. So again, my unequivocal stance is stay away from the N.A. beers that contain trace amounts of alcohol. If you end up having all six beers in under an hour, there's a good chance you'll feel it and crave more. So now let's cover kombucha. What is kombucha and why is it so popular in the US right now? According to Kombucha Brewers International, kombucha is a fermented tea beverage that's made by adding a symbiotic culture of bacteria and yeast. This is SCOBY to a solution of tea and sugar. And this will provide various compounds including alcohol and acidic acid, the primary flavor of vinegar. So kombucha helps support healthy liver function and assists the liver in the detoxification process by making fat-soluble toxins become water soluble. A cool recent study found recovering alcoholics with higher gut bacteria diversity were more successful at staying sober. There is a strong gut-brain connection, and drinking kombucha strengthens that connection by increasing the amount of healthy gut bacteria. Did you guys know that 80% of serotonin is created in the gut? So it's important that we have healthy gut bacteria and function. I also want to cover, if you had a sandwich or burger for lunch today, you most likely had more alcohol than a kombucha. Burger rolls have almost 1.3% alcohol, and a ripe banana or pear have about 0.4% alcohol. So again, you want to ask yourself, how far down do you want to draw this line in the sand? This whole kit and caboodle, it's not a no to alcohol, but a yes to a better life. So back to kombucha. My take, my stance, my opinion is have a kombucha for lunch, green light. Now it's probably better to wait till you have 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, six months a year, right? But in addition, make sure if you're at a kombucha brewery, it's less than 0.5% or even better, 0.0%. But I feel the health benefits outweigh the risks with kombucha. Plus, for some reason, the thought of chugging 12 kombuchas at lunch makes my stomach stir. I simply don't want to do that. So what sometimes sneaks up on me with kombucha is the caffeine. If I have one for dinner, it usually keeps me up at night. So keep that in mind. To go a little deeper in this episode... The problem isn't the alcohol well at first it is when we are physically addicted to it but after it's been out of the system for 24 hours 72 hours 7 days 12 days for the extreme cases for a significant amount of time it's all about finding healthier ways to regulate inner discomfort without an external substance like wine beer spirits sex shopping gambling or kombucha awareness of what's happening internally is significantly more important than avoiding kombucha Now, before we hear from Derek, I want to talk to you guys about the Recovery Elevator Live event taking place in Denver, Colorado, this June 11th to the 13th with an event titled Dancing with the Mind. You'll learn how to create your future, happy, wholesome, authentic self that no longer needs alcohol, and you'll draw this new life to you like a magnet in the present moment. You'll understand how to depart from unhealthy identities, roles, stories, thought patterns, and narratives that are no longer serving you. We'll cover moderate drinking. Does it work? Can it work for you? You'll build lifelong in-person connections with others who don't drink. There will be a live meditation music performed for the meditations. And we've got Wendy Sutter, who plays with the New York Symphony Orchestra, coming with her cello to assist me with the live guided meditations. Now, this event, like all Recovery Elevator events, is going to be fun. Go to recoveryelevator.com for more information and to register. Derek, how are you? Hey, Paul.
1: I'm great, thanks. How are you?
0: Yeah, Derek, I'm great. Thanks for asking. Thank you for reaching out. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I'm excited to share your story with the audience. I'm glad you had the courage to come on and and share it yourself, hear it firsthand from you. Let's get right into this, Derek. When was your last drink?
1: August 22nd uh, 2019
0: August 22nd 2019 we're about six and a half months away from alcohol fantastic job how does it feel Derek
1: it feels great Paul I can't I can't tell you enough it's amazing
0: yeah. So Derek, thank you so much for coming on. I'm excited to hear your story, both parts afterward, how you did it, um, what's working for you and also the pain points before. What what was troubling? What what led you to make the most important decision in your life when you're conscious, the unconscious, the heart and soul, they all start working together collectively to move forward and ditch the booze. So I can't wait to share your story, learn more about you. But before we get any further, Derek, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living your age? Do you have a family and what do you like to do for fun?
1: Sure. I'm from New York City. I currently live in Philadelphia. I'm a real estate agent here at Copper Hill Real Estate and I like to ride my bike and play ping pong <laughs> a lot lately. I've gotten a ping pong table now so that's kind of my new obsession.
0: Yeah, I went to a spin class this morning at 6 a.m. It's a second spin class I did this week and the guy I interviewed last week, I think his name was... What was his name real quick? Yeah, uh, Raj, biking was a big part of his journey. It was, it was great. I love it. Um, wh- how how mm-hmm. has biking been a part of your journey?
1: Yeah, I hadn't ridden a bike really seriously since I started drinking at 13. So I bought a bike uh, right after I quit, and I, I've just been loving it. It's it's a great exercise, and I'm getting to see my city in a really cool way because I've, I've always driven everywhere, and now I get to really hit the road and get to see all the ins and outs.
0: Yeah, there you go. What do you like about ping pong?
1: I'm really bad at it, so I like learning new things and uh, practicing uh, to get better because I'm pretty horrible. So it's really fun.
0: Yeah, this last weekend I was in a bar. I think it's called Spin City in Seattle, Washington, where it's full of— Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, they have one here too.
0: Do they really? Okay. It's it's an incredible concept where you rent a ping pong table for about an hour. And the traditional way you play ping pong, it's like you have one or two balls. And once it hits the floor, somebody's got to go fetch it. But this, they have a huge bucket. Like, it's almost like a golf range. And every time the ball right. hits the ground, you just reach in out of the bucket and pull another ball. I mean, my shoulder was sore. We played so <laughs> much ping pong. I loved it.
1: Yeah, it's great, isn't it? I did the same thing. I bought about 200 balls from my house. So now we're playing the same way, and we just pick it up at the end. So it's really uh, its a lot of fun.
0: Well, Derek, I'm excited to hear more about your story. Give listeners background with your drinking. How much did you drink? Did you ever attempt to moderate? When did you first realize and fully understand that drinking was a problem? And did you have any rock bottom moments? So you're 35 years old now. You quit drinking six and a half months ago. Get us up to speed. I'm excited to hear it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I started at 13 pretty early, I guess, just drinking in in New York on the streets we get a bottle and just walk down the street and drink. And it was a lot of fun, but I just at a very early age realized that I loved the feeling of being out of control. And when I was 17, my father was killed in the World Trade Center and I used alcohol really a lot to kind of cover up those feelings, which were brutal. And um, it really helped me get through those moments. So it became kind of like my best friend. And I used that all the way up until six months ago. And I'm just starting to feel all those feelings again, because it's it really does block your emotions for for. A very very long time and yeah it's funny to be dealing with these problems i had when i was 17 now in my mid-30s but it's going to come eventually if you uh if you stop drinking
0: first off derek i'm incredibly sorry to hear about your father in the world trade center and i can totally understand how when we when life happens when these tragedies when these traumas hit our drinking ramps up we we need to develop behaviors to to cope with that to deal with that and i feel that's what you did so when you were 17, your father passes away, talk to us about the role that drinking played in your life shortly after that.
1: Yeah, I mean, that night, I remember when the, the, the towers fell, I went to the store a few hours later, and just bought a bottle and started drinking and it helped. I put on some music and I just was able to get, escape a little bit and just kind of cry into the bottle. And I, I did that for weeks and probably months after that. You know, unfortunately, it really works. As, as we know, alcohol works for a very short period of time and then it really doesn't work. You know, I clung on to that because it was—it was the only thing I knew how to how to get over these kind of horrible feelings. You know.
0: Yeah. So Derek, it does work. It works in the acute short term. So we're not feeling good. And for the next several hours, it works. And then when it goes out of our system, then we're actually worse off. But actually, in the longer term, for the short term, it can work, for example, for a couple years, I found that internal Mm -hmm. connection through alcohol for four to five years. And then we reach a moment where it no longer works, even in even in the very short term, when we start drinking for a night, even that stops working. So when did you start to recognize that the effects that alcohol was having to to help you calm down, to, to, to soothe the loss of your father, when did you realize that it stopped working?
1: Probably about three years ago. I started to just, you know, the negatives started to outweigh the positives. And I just wanted to, I don't know, distance myself. So then I started to keep track of which days I was drinking. I kept a calendar, put a red X if it was a drinking day, and I put a blue X if it was a non-drinking day. And very quickly, you start to see the patterns that I was drinking at least half the time. And, you know, I'm a big guy. I drink a lot. So I was really doing a number on my physical health. I was doing a number on my relationships. And I, I think I just started to say maybe I should slow down. And when I tried, it was impossible, basically, for me. I, I realized I, I was lying to myself on a constant basis. Okay, I'm not going to drink today. And then I would drink. I'm not going to drink tomorrow. And then I would drink. And it just, I think after a while, I just got annoyed at lying to myself
0: all the time. So what was it like when you looked at the calendar and saw way more red X's than blue X's? Then that's coupled with the feeling you just said that this is impossible. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this.
1: Yeah, I mean it was it was a really scary moment because I never thought I had a problem. I always thought it was just um, social, all my friends drank and all that kind of stuff. So when I actually tried to take a few days off and I, I was having trouble with that, it, it was terrifying because then I realized, oh my God, I have a problem and I'm going to have to be that AA guy and I'm never going to have fun again and, you know, all that kind of stuff, and it just builds and builds, and it it actually made me drink more.
0: So, Derek, you said something that I know a lot of listeners resonated with. The first time they quit drinking, it's almost, it's like it's too far, or we've, we've gone a little too far down the progression. It's a huge wake-up call. I remember my first one in Spain, I had a panic attack, and I, I flew back home, and a doctor challenged me to 30 days, and I didn't even make it mm-hmm. to 30 days. I made it to 23, and then I kept going seven more days, but... That right there was one of the most profound challenges of my life. And, and that was always something that I told myself is like, oh, I can take a break. Yeah, I can, I can take three, four, five days off. But then when it came to that moment and you just said to take three days off, it's difficult. And it's this massive wake up call. The light bulb goes off and say, wait a second, we got to get a grip on this before it gets too far. So what happened after that? So 35 years old, three years before that, you're 32. You recognize this right. is a problem, yeah. What happens? Yeah, so
1: I, I kept the calendar and I kept trying to stop. To, well, really, to slow down, and then I started doing the negotiations where you know I don't drink on this. Uh, I don't drink during the week. Then I only drink beer. Then I only drink a, a little bit of whiskey. Then some beer. Then I only drink wine. The, I mean, literally every possible combination you can think of to to try to keep this addiction alive. I tried, and. Then I, I guess it just – one night I was really, really drunk, and I realized that – I just kind of had that epiphany moment where I'm like, I just can't do this. Obviously, I can't, I can't moderate. I'm just – it's not in me. And I can – I'm very good with, with willpower when I'm not drunk, but once I have that first drink, it's over. So it kind of just all clicked into place, and it made sense to me that I had to stop.
0: Derek, you said something I want to ask you about. You said you tried to keep the addiction alive. You tried everything you could to keep the addiction alive. Talk to us more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, the fear of being without that crutch. I would rather, you know, at least be able to have one or two or, or drink. You know, I don't even like wine, but I would drink wine, you know, just so I could be drinking at a party or whatever it was so I wouldn't be legitimately drunk off of whiskey or whatever. So you're just trying to find find some kind of way to stay, stay a part of this society, you know, because it, it does feel like you're, you're kind of an outcast from society at first when you stop, because everybody does it, every event revolves around it. It's funny, because if you fall down drunk, people laugh about it, but if you say, I get sober, they think, wow, you are a problem, you know, so it's, you're more embarrassed of being sober than falling down drunk, it doesn't make
0: any sense. I love how you phrased that, tried to keep the addiction alive. I don't think I've ever heard it said in that fashion on the podcast, but many people have, 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 have also articulated it in a similar way because it's so hard to depart from the known. Even though we recognize it's a problem, we're falling down drunk at times and it's causing more damage than good in our lives, we're saying goodbye to more than just alcohol. We're saying goodbye to identities, to roles, to, to groups, to friends, to locations, and unconsciously, it knows this, and it's an incredible, it's incredibly difficult to do, we've covered that on every episode, and that's why we write Dear John letters, you're saying goodbye to your best friend, and a big part of you tries to keep the addiction, addiction, and the, I, I think it's, I cover it in my book, the Roman, or the old Greek word, or Roman word is addictus, which means a slave to we we try to keep mm. ourselves a slave to this old life, and almost doing everything in our power to prevent us going forward in life without alcohol. Cause we know, and you already said it earlier that we're going to be facing the things that held us back at age 17, age 19, age 20 in our twenties. And life is going to mm. get real when we quit drinking. We know this. And I want to say the flip side of it to listeners, life is also incredible on the other side. Sunsets are more vibrant. You're going to see more sunrises. Life is also surreal. It's incredible on the other side. But yeah, keep Mm -hmm. the addiction alive. So what was the, uh, you you mentioned when you were drinking, you had this epiphany moment, Um, maybe like a light bulb moment, a moment of clarity. Talk to us more about that.
1: Yeah, I remember I was, I, you know, I was very drunk, so I'm trying to remember exactly how it went, but I was laying in bed and I was just feeling bad and just just feeling terrible, like the beginning of the hangover had started. And I just, I actually downloaded Craig Beck's book, uh, Stop Drinking Alcohol, and listened to it while falling asleep. And it really clicked over in my mind and it, something it just changed the way I thought about everything because I, I realized this is so stupid. I'm wasting my life. I'm throwing it away. I'm killing myself. I mean, you know, I... We all act like it's, a, it's a fun in fun games, but the way I was drinking, I was going to probably die. You know, I think that that was the moment I just said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm so tired of making these promises. I'm so tired of waking up hungover, and it's just not worth it. And I, the next day, I, I just didn't drink anymore. That was it.
0: Go back a little bit. You said willpower worked when you weren't drinking. Talk to us about mm-hmm. why do you think the willpower flew out the window when you were drinking?
1: as soon as you take that first sip, you're not in control anymore. I mean, if you have this thing that I seem to have and a lot of people seem to have, it's, it's like a monster that lives inside, in you, inside of you, like a werewolf. And every time you let it out, you're no longer in control. And it's, it's really frustrating because, you know, you have that one drink and it, you don't think that you're out of control. You, you can still maneuver, you can still function, but in reality, you've, you've woken the beast and now you're, you're stuck. Now it's going to be another day so you can, you can be in control again.
0: Sure, when you mentioned you have this thing, when you have one drink, it's unleashed. And for myself, it was the inner loneliness, right? When I had this one drink and in Mm -hmm. modern medicine and i've covered on the podcast it could be a disease and my tune has switched on that when it first started the podcast the first 100 episode you'd even hear me saying i have a disease and in 1958 the american medical association classified addiction alcoholism as a disease so people with brains much larger than mine have classified this as disease and Mm -hmm. there are brain scans that show definitive changes after an addiction has already taken place. However, my tune has changed, which is normal when someone goes down a project, they uncover more research, more findings, more personal experience, where sure, as I just mentioned, there are changes in the brain chemistry, but I believe all of those except only one or two, that's the uh, deposits of THIQs, which are tetrahydroisoquinolines. In the brain and that's when we do binge drinking and that's what the flip the lever it becomes difficult to switch off once we start drinking and that is when we have one or two that's when it's like impossible to stop so that change unfortunately. Um, it's actually good for me. I know that if I go out and drink again, it's not going to end pretty that change is irreversible, Mm -hmm. but 99% of the changes that happen in our brain are reversible due to neuroplasticity. I'm going to make this point. I'm slowly getting to it, (laughs) Derek, um, (laughs) so this thing internally that we have, and I asked Raj about it last week, if he thinks it's a disease where we can call it what we want, um, I encourage you not to call it a disease because just that word carries so much weight at the unconscious level. So what I found with it was once I took that drink, especially in my early 20s when I was in Spain away from my friends, my family, my mom and dad everything that i knew that was known when i took that first drink the heart and soul took one false step closer and after that first drink it felt good and no matter what i would say look i gotta work i just bought a bar in spain i'm only gonna have one, two, or three, or or four right it just felt good yeah so the internal mm-hmm. turmoil this discomfort the traumas that we all experience in life they they start to dissolve they start to to separate and in, in my experience, and over the countless conversations that I had, that plays a big role of why it is so hard to stop once we start is because we get that internal connection. And sometimes that internal connection is so intense, it actually backfires on the addiction, shall we say, and we can get a moment of clarity. And that is when there's an internal peace, an, an internal connection where there is no longer dissonance. And it sounds like you had that where you go, I don't need this shit anymore and sometimes this happens when we're at like the perfect drunk and I don't want to use that word but like you mentioned it was right before the hangover is gonna start you weren't getting any drunker but you were just like this this homeostasis this flat line on your level and you could see everything clearly um, you said I'm done with this shit so that's my take on what the inner beast is what, what is your thought on that Derek
1: that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I don't know. I I really haven't done the research to find out about the disease versus you know whatever else. But I definitely know there's a lot of alcoholism in my family. So I you know there's always that temptation to blame other people for your problems. But at the end of the day, I'm still in control. So I, I don't really worry about it too much about the semantics. It's just I have this problem, and I'm not going to let it rule my life anymore.
0: That's pretty much it. I like what you said right there about whatever it is it's all semantics it doesn't really matter. Now the role of the disease or genetics is is an easier one to to fall back on and 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 with if your father if your father's an alcoholic, your mother on that side of the family too, there's a good chance that you might become an alcoholic and that's that's rational thinking, but addiction guru Dr. Gabor Maté um, I think he was, I think he would hang his hat on this is debunking that myth in his career saying that it's not genetic. And this is a case of your environment, but I love how you said it, Derek, where it doesn't matter what you have call it this. It's all labels. It's all semantics. You've got something that you, you, you struggle with and it's drinking. So it doesn't even matter what mm-hmm. it's called. You recognize that it was an issue and you had that moment of clarity, that epiphany and you stopped drinking. Talk to us about what it was like after that moment and how you did it. Yeah, so uh, the
1: next few days were pretty easy. I was recovering from a pretty brutal hangover. And, I, you know, you become really steadfast on your decision. I'm not going to drink anymore and all this. But, you know, come, I think it was a, about a week later or so, I was, you know, the weekend was coming up and I was starting to realize, oh, my God, how do I do Friday without drinking? How do I do Saturday without drinking? What do I do? You know, because I, literally, I don't think I had a Friday, Saturday without you know, without drinking for, for years and years. So I didn't even know how to exist without it. You know, what do you, what do, you do? So it's, it was kind of that thing. And then I started to find little things that I enjoyed again. And that really helped me get through it. I'm a musician. I started to play more piano, more guitar. I bought a bike, like I said. I just started to do things, work out again. Because if you don't do things, you're going to end up probably relapsing, I think. If you don't make a new life, you're going to go back to your old life.
0: listeners Derek said something that made me go huh what the first couple days were easy and then you explained it more I was like oh yeah that that makes sense for me the first 72 hours were the hardest as in the physical withdrawal symptoms were the most acute the most intense however during those first 72 hours the pain was so prevalent so constant it was easy to tell myself Paul Pablo this is why we're no longer drinking because we feel like shit But like you said, Mm -hmm. soon as the 72 hours would wear off, those first two nights of no sleep, I'd get like one, you know, night three, I'd sleep a little bit. Night four, I'd sleep more. And then the weekend would roll around, like you said, and you go, holy shit, I haven't done a weekend without alcohol in who knows how long. Mm-hmm. And one of the most dangerous parts of this whole kitten caboodle is the ism, the ISM, the incredible short memory. So even though right. those 72 hours of pain and pure discomfort in hell were just three days ago, my mind was like, huh, wasn't that bad, was it? And, and did you experience that? And how did you make, make it through your first weekend?
1: Yeah, I, I, the first weekend, I think I, I basically hunkered down and kind of just watched movies and just tried to get through it. Because I, I knew my friends were going out. I knew there, was, there were some events that I was going to have to miss. So that was really tough. And just to, just trying not to say, well, I could, I've only been sober a week. Why not just drink this weekend and then start again Monday or, or whatever kind of stuff like that? You know, you try to negotiate. But yeah, you're absolutely right about the short memory because, man, it's, I, that's why I started keeping the calendar. Because otherwise, I, was like, I don't think I drank that much last week. But once you have a calendar, you can see that, man, I drank four or five, four or seven days, you know, and it's, uh, you have to start doing things that remind yourself of the, the negatives of drinking, because it's so easy to remember the positives. I had a great night last night. We partied and danced and I met a girl and whatever, but it's it's mostly negative, at least in my experience.
0: It's mostly negative, but it takes us a while to recognize that. So, how did you do it after after the first week? Did you go to Alcoholics Anonymous? Did you start listening to podcasts, reading books? You mentioned you uh, downloaded a, a Craig Beck book, I believe it, is what you said. Hmm.
1: Yeah. So I listened to his book, and then I listened to like all of his stuff on um, on drinking, and then I started to go through uh, YouTube and you know watch all. Different kinds of videos on people and how they they did it. Then all the celebrities that got sober and kind of like their stories on it. I found your app and then your podcast, which really helped a lot. Which is why I wanted to be on because um, I really wanted to hopefully reach someone else the way that your your podcast has reached me. Yeah, I mean it just it just kind of snowballed and you become kind of it becomes a new world for you. This whole uh, sobriety world and the people who are trying to better themselves versus all the the negative drunken. <laughs> fools I surrounded myself with before you know
0: I like how you said that it's people trying to better themselves and that's a hundred percent what this is we all have issues every single human being on this planet we all have something internally that we struggle with despite what their social media Facebook news feed wants you to think we all (laughs) have things that hold us back and we have collectively on this podcast it's alcohol and, and just like you said, we are a group where the pain points are so intense and also the desire to be the best version of ourselves to better ourselves are of equal magnitude or greater than the alcohol than the addiction. And so that alone is what makes the camaraderie of sobriety of this journey so intense. Now, earlier in the interview, you mentioned, I think this was in the first couple minutes you said, now that you don't have alcohol in your life, you're, you're facing issues that you faced at 17 and the emotions are coming back up. What are some of the things you're facing and, and how's that been? Well,
1: I guess I never really dealt with the emotions of losing my dad like that. And I mean, I, I don't know how to explain it. Cause of course I dealt with it. I was there and it all happened, but, but the deep emotions of it, I didn't because I was just drunk the whole time. So now just, just realizing, you know, what I've lost, what's been taken away from me. I just got married, you know, I couldn't share that with my father cause he was, he's gone. And Things like that, you just start to realize my wife never met my father, things like that. And it starts to make you uh, kind of, I don't know, focus on what's important in life. And and I I really, um, I don't know, it's it's trying to change the way I've seen seen things because I was so obsessed with drinking. I didn't really care about emotions. I didn't care about how I felt. I just tried to ignore them and push them down. And I figured I'd probably die before I had to deal with them. But that's not the case.
0: What is important to you in life?
1: I mean, my health is one of the most important things, right? I, I never really cared about that. And I started to see other people falling apart from, from drinking. And uh, I really don't want to get to that, that age where I'm like, oh, I'm going to die from this. And it was all avoidable. So that's probably the biggest one. But um, also just who I am. I, I think that drinking made me a liar and it made me a bad person in a lot of ways. Selfish and I think that's changed a lot. I've really tried to be a, just a better person overall and it's it's working.
0: So with these emotions that are coming up, alcohol is no longer an option. What are some strategies, what are some techniques you use instead of drinking to get through them? Uh,
1: exercise is big. I wake up early and exercise, I started to do like a steam sauna as well, just to kind of like cleanse myself and, and uh, just feel like vibrance it really does help the sauna I find. I, uh, again, ping pong, biking, outdoor activities as much as, much as possible, um, even though it's cold here a lot and it's not possible. And talking to other people who, who kind of go through the same thing, it, it helps. I actually just went to my first meeting. Uh, it was a smart recovery meeting I just went to the other day for the first time because I was starting to feel really isolated. And it was nice to hear other people's stories and kind of get a sense that, that I'm not alone.
0: What what role has your wife played on this journey for you? Have you been open my, with my her? My wife, yeah,
1: she's been incredible. She she actually stopped too. She stopped with me so that we could we could do it together. She she didn't have a problem, but she you know she drank and she said you know I don't really need this. I think that we can have a better life without it. So she she gave it up, which was amazing, because I know she'd love to have a glass of wine here and there. And she, she's been there for me every step of the way. We've we've just spent more time than ever. We get along better than ever. It's it's amazing. I can't even emphasize
0: that enough. Did you let your wife know how serious the drinking was about the red X's, about the blue X's, about the internal discord, yeah. or how serious it was?
1: Absolutely. She knew everything. She I think, actually, the, the calendar might have been her idea. And she, she's been there with me every step of the way. Every night before bed, we, we put a blue X on the calendar. It's, it's part of our routine. And, you know, she's been my biggest supporter, and I, I can't thank her enough.
0: No way. Every night before you guys go to bed, you put a blue X on the calendar together. Yep. How incredible is that? And, guys, you've heard me say on this podcast many times, this is a collaborative healing effort. Gone are the days where we are in our own basement church, doing our healing and they are their own rooms doing their healings. It's good that we have our small group breakout sessions, but um, this is why it, it, at the Denver event in June, June 11th, to the 13th spouses are welcome. And we've had spouses come to past events and it's, it's worked out great. They also need their healing. We need their healing. And then when we come together, those synergies are absolutely incredible. So how cool is that? You put a blue X on the calendar. Peace. Good night. ah, That's, I I love that. And and Derek, what is something you've learned about yourself along this journey? Uh,
1: I guess I'm stronger than I thought I was. That's, that's the biggest thing. It's you, you can control it. I always thought that I just couldn't because I never tried. I never really tried not to do the thing that I wanted to do. And now I, you know, I have a lot more respect for myself, honestly, because I can, I can say no to things that I want to do, which is, it's pretty much the hardest thing there is to say no to, to something that's fun and exciting and no, I'm going to bed. Blue X. Good night.
0: So there's about three hundred and eighty-five definitions of addiction, but two of them come to mind when you what we just said there's one of them is an addiction is we can't get enough of something that we don't want. That's kind of a mouthful. And another one is addiction is when you think you can't stop, or addiction is when you think you can't control something. So think and control, mm-hmm. think you can't control. So whether you think you can or you can't, you're usually right on that one mm-hmm. and so there will come in a day with an addiction you can hear all 265 70 episodes of this podcast but that day will come where you have to put your heels in the sand draw that line and it's all up to you no matter how much community and accountability that you build at the end of the day you have to make that decision to not take that drink i like how you said that thank you now, Derek, we're going deep in the vault with the questions here. I'm loving this. What would be advice <laughs> to your younger self?
1: Honestly, I don't know if I would have any advice because that guy wasn't going to listen. He was a stubborn mule and he, was a, he loved drinking. So I, I don't think I could get through to him, honestly. I would, I would like to say, you know, stop, <laughs> but um, I'm pretty much positive I, I wouldn't have listened at that age, any, any age pretty much before this.
0: You know, Derek, I wouldn't say a single word to, to Paul. What I would do is give him a hug and just give him a hug and say, no, I wouldn't say, just give him a hug and, well, in the hug, it would be, I love you, but I love you, man. You just walk away. That's it. I'm right there with you, man. I like that. So Derek, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you need to answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yep. Let's do it. All right. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey?
1: Again, I just said I'm stronger than I thought I was. I can take care of myself. I can do whatever I put my mind to. And it's, it sounds like a cliche, but it's actually true.
0: And Derek, what's an excuse that you used to tell yourself to why you couldn't quit drinking?
1: My friends, my, my social so- circles. I, what would I do? I'd be all alone. I wouldn't have anyone. I wouldn't have a, a social life, and I would die alone in a, a little cabin by myself.
0: Real quick, how has your social circle of friends evolved with your decision to quit drinking?
1: Who care about me are around, and the people who don't aren't. And it's it's a really great way to, to kind of rid yourself of unwanted negative people in your life. It, it hurts because you realize that some of your best friends aren't, but man, sometimes it feels good to clean house.
0: Yeah, let me rephrase that. The people who care about you are still around, and the people who don't care about you are not. Yeah. Alcohol yep, is the best seltzer. filter or quitting drinking that you can ever ask for. Next question, Absolutely. Derek. What's your favorite alcohol-free drink?
1: Either coffee or a seltzer. I'm just a, a simple man, but I like those things.
0: <laughs> I think that's the first time we've heard coffee on a podcast.
1: Really? Yeah, I think so. Wow. I don't okay. even think
0: we've heard cold brew or macchiato or anything like that.
1: Oh, oh okay. Those are good, too. <laughs> there you go. Yeah.
0: What are some of your favorite resources, Derek?
1: Again, the Craig Beck series has really helped me a lot. And your podcast, I'm I'm not just trying to blow smoke. It's actually
0: really helped me a lot. Derek, thank you for listening. It takes two people to make this podcast, so you're an equal part of it. Now, what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life?
1: Oh, boy. Well, just to stay alcohol-free is the number one thing. But um, I really am excited to travel again because I haven't traveled since I've been sober. And I think I missed a lot of great things because I was too busy trying to get to the bar. The last time i was overseas so i'm, I'm ready to go and uh, experience the world for real
0: and what are your thoughts on relapse Derek?
1: it's never gonna happen to me <laughs> i'm fighting it with everything i got i i'm not gonna let it happen i i understand that it it's possible and i'm that's why i'm staying so vigilant and if you if you let yourself slip for a moment it could happen so um i'm staying on top of it i never take it for granted and blue x's all the time you know
0: and what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners?
1: Just do it. It's, uh, I know that's a cliche, but it's its so much easier to be sober than to be drunk in the long run. It's so much better. Just, just give it a shot.
0: So to piggyback on that one, Derek, the mind will justify it will create a, an elaborate fabrication of why a date, which usually is never today or tomorrow and probably not even this week, why that date in the future is the best date to quit drinking after a breakup, after the holidays, after a birthday, after a job, after a move, etc. cetera. But like you just said, just do this today. You have the very best chance of quitting drinking. And neurologically, even if you drink 20 or 30 more times, you postpone it a week or a year, the neural networks, those neurons will continue to be firing. Those pathways will be further deepened. Those grooves of rigidity of of, of the default mode network and the unconscious and the conscious mind will be a little deeper, right? So it's going to be more difficult to lift up that record needle that's going around that record. So today, you have the absolute best chances of quitting drinking. So... Just do it. How do you feel about that?
1: Just do it. (laughs) I love it.
0: That's it. And before we depart, Derek, give listeners your favorite. You might need to ditch the booze if line.
1: You might need to ditch the booze if you think you might need to ditch the booze. I don't think anyone who doesn't have a problem even thinks about it. So for me, as soon as I realized I might have a problem, I I had a problem.
0: Love it. It can be that simple. Yeah. You short answers and you knock these out of the park. Good stuff, Derek. Love it. Ah,
1: thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thank you for being part of the Recovery Elevator Project, this podcast interview. Thank you for listening. As I mentioned, it takes two people to do an interview, and it also takes people to listen to the interview and submit feedback and, and guidance and support, because it's, it's, uh, it's been an incredible journey, but there's been difficult times as well. And it's listeners like you that have uh, helped me go this far. So thank you so much, Derek.
1: Thank you, Paul. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, okay. Take care, buddy. Take care. This one is from Neil. Thanks for listening. You might need to ditch the booze if your 60-pound labradoodle sleeps on your chest after you pass out and you don't even wake up. And Neil also says, hello to Ben. Ben, you hear that? Neil says, what's up? Guys, I've got three free guided meditations that you can get at the recoveryelevator.com website. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash meditations enter your email address, and you're gonna get three guided meditations. And I'm excited to get these out because I've created the music as well as the dialogue, the instruction that goes over the top. So I feel like there's an opportunity being missed with traditional or conventional meditation music. The music is always secondary, right? It's just kind of in the background, it's just sort of there. Now, I feel that music, the energy behind it, is a powerful healing tool. And with my meditations, what I wanna do is almost link up the maximum or the crescendo part of the meditation with the music. So in these meditations, you'll recognize that the music peaks. It's almost loud at times, and and it it matches the moment in the meditation where we put out this clear and coherent vision of our new alcohol-free self into the field that instructs the matter. So the first meditation is a body scan where we're going to use the mind to locate the body instead of using the mind to figure out how to solve all all, all of our external problems. The second meditation is the new self where we clearly define with a coherent vision where we want to be in an alcohol-free life. We then place this vision into the field which it has no choice but to manifest what the internal declaration is putting out externally. This is simply a universal law we're working with. The third meditation is the inner child. We're going to be turning the I, the me, into a we And we're going to be bridging the gap from you to your inner child who's been there all along. And you and your inner child then look back on your journey with gratitude and praise, recognizing it was all the past events that put you into this moment. We then put a vision of the future with you and building that love internally out again to the field. These are fun meditations. All experiences of of meditation practices are welcome and I hope you enjoy them, and let me know some feedback. These are the first three meditations that I'm putting out there into the cyberspace. I cannot wait to hear what you guys think about them. All right, guys. Okay, everybody, rule 22, lighten up. We took the elevator down. We gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.